Please turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 22. We will study the whole chapter, which is verses 1 to 12. Second Chronicles 22, verses 1 to 12. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at verse 1. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the band of men that came with the Arabians to kill to the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done. For after the death of his father, they were his counselors to his undoing. He even followed their counsel and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to make war against Haziel, king of Syria at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram, and he returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that he had received at Ramah when he fought against Haziel, the king of Syria. And Azariah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was wounded. But it was ordained by God that the downfall of Ahaziah should come about through his going to visit Joram. For when he came there, he went out with Jehoram to meet Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to destroy the house of Ahab. And when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he met the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers who attended Ahaziah, and he killed them. He searched for Ahaziah, and he was captured while hiding in Samaria, and he was brought to Jehu and put to death. They buried him, for they said, He is the grandson of Jehoshaphat, who sought the Lord with all his heart. And the house of Ahaziah had no one able to rule the kingdom. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Azariah, son, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabeath, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Then Jehoshabeath, the daughter of King Jehoram and wife of Jehoiada the priest, because she was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she did not put him to death. And he remained with them six years, hidden in the house of God while Athaliah reigned over the land. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the sacred history. It tells us about the world in which we live, but more than that, it tells us about you, your sovereign faithfulness to do all that you have said. All your promises will be kept. Oh, Father, help us in times when the lamp of your salvation may seem dim to know it will never go out, for you are the true and the living God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 12 presents a vision designed to explain the history of the entire world from the perspective of Satan's warfare against Christ and his people. And the vision has two parts, and the first part depicts 
the devil's failed attempts to destroy the seed promised by God, which would result in the incarnate Savior. The Apostle John, verse 2 of Revelation 12, saw a woman who was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And before her was a great red dragon who stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it, verses 3 to 4. Now, when we connect that vision, and by the way, it's something of a pet peeve of mine that we should all know that vision. It's one of the reasons to study Revelation. This is intended to be a picture. It's a macro structure. And that's what we see here because you connect it to the Old Testament and you see that very thing. You saw it in Egypt when Satan, working through Pharaoh, ordered the slaying of all the sons born in in the the people of, of Israel. God protected the life of the baby Moses through the faithful efforts of his parents. You see the evil figure of Haman in the book of Esther, seeking a royal decree to put to death all the Jews in Babylon, Esther 3, verse 9. Now, prominent in that category of persons is the evil queen in Judah, Athaliah, who in the spirit of her mother Jezebel sought to destroy all the sons in the royal house of King David. Now, Athaliah appears in Scripture like the evil queen in a children's fairy tale. In fact, I think it's not right to say that Athaliah is like the evil queen in Snow White or something, or, or the, the, the fairy tales we know. It's actually the other way around. She's one of the original prototypes from which the fairy tales draw their ideas. And her coming to power in Jerusalem represents one of the low points for God's people in all of Scripture. And yet the darkness that Athaliah brings to the kingdom of Judah, it only provided a choice opportunity for the Lord to shine his saving light. In what seems an improbable way, God was using the weak to overcome the strong. And so a son of the Redeemer's line would be preserved, hope would be restored. For as Athaliah would come to learn, and and through her, her evil master Satan What God has ordained must always come to pass. It's the great message of this passage. By the time the story of Athaliah is completed in the next chapter, chapter 23, we'll be able to agree with the lines of the Virgin Mary and the song of praise she sang for the birth of her son. She sang, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. Luke 1, 51-2. Athaliah's rise to power was preceded by the death of her son, Judah's king Ahaziah, and it happened through her own disastrous counsel. And the story of this king's brief reign begins in God's judgment on the sins of his father. You remember his father was Jehoram. Jehoram was the son of godly Jehoshaphat. And when Jehoshaphat died, Jehoram took the throne and immediately he wickedly slew all his brothers. Well, God judged that and he judged it as he so often does in kind. He caused all of Jehoram's sons to be put to death, all except for the youngest king Ahaziah. And in his wrath, the Lord then put Jehoram himself to death in a dreadful manner, an infliction that caused his bowels to come out. 
Well, the result was that the people of Jerusalem were left with only one Davidic heir, verse 1 of our chapter. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place, for the band of men that came with the Arabians to the camp had killed all the older sons. Ahaziah was enthroned around the year 841 B.C., and his kingship would not last long. Verse 2, Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign And he reigned one year in Jerusalem. Now the most significant feature of Ahaziah's short reign was the influence of his wicked mother, Athaliah, and the infection that comes from the idol-worshipping house of the northern kingdom. Look at verse 3. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. Now, we remember that Athaliah was married to Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, because of the folly. I read this week, one of the scholars said, I hate to hear Jehoshaphat being talked badly about, but I can't deny what was said. He was personally faithful, but covenantally stupid. It's hard to deny it's true. Because he marries his son, the heir to the daughter of Ahab and and Jezebel, Athaliah, and she comes into from the apostate northern kingdom to Jerusalem as the mother of the new king. And so when Jehoram succeeded his father, her, her, undoubtedly her influence was involved in the, the plan to wipe out all the rivals when he slew his brothers. But then Jehoram died, and now Athaliah has grown in power through the heir that she has raised in the ways of her evil parents, Ahab and Jezebel. Now she sits at the right hand of the king, advising him in the performance of evil. With her were other counselors like her who advised him, verse 4 says, to his undoing. Leslie Allen writes that now the influence of the northern kingship, which like the proverbial camel, poked its nose into the Judean royal tent, will now make its presence blatantly felt. Well, the evil influence of Athaliah and these other advisors from the northern kingdom can be seen in the initiative that's launched by young King Ahaziah. Not surprisingly, what surprise, surprise, under the counsel of his mother and his co-advisors, he decides he's going to allow the, ally the kingdom of Judah with the kingdom of Israel in pursuit of the northern kingdom's military ambitions. The very thing the northern kingdom wanted, troops from Judah to pursue its ambitions. Verse 5, he even followed their counsel. And what was Jehoram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, to make war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead? You may notice that Ramoth-Gilead shows up a lot. That's because they were fighting over it a lot. That's because it was a fortress city. It was actually in the original lands of Israel. It was in the the area of the tribe of Gad, to the east of, of what the northern kingdom now was. And it lay across a strategic road. It, it controlled one of the major trade routes. And so that's why there were wars fought over it. And the kingdom of Israel wanted that city back. And that's why it, that's the place where Jehoshaphat had foolishly gone to battle together with King Ahab. But Ahab was wounded by that arrow shot at random. And it's now that together with Jehoram, the new king of Israel who is Ahaziah's uncle, they together think the time is ripe for another attempt at the city. Now, the most remarkable feature of Ahaziah's reign, I think, is the way he and his mother failed to learn from rather striking experiences given by God that should have been instructive, namely about the truth of God's retribution on sin. 
One thing the book of Chronicles shows very clearly is the idea that God judges sin and very often in direct, immediate, and corresponding retribution. Those who walk in the ways of evil and who sin flagrantly are very likely very soon to be judged. Now, Ahaziah's father, here's, here's what they should have learned. His father slain his brother, so his children were slaves. That, that's a tip. Uh, Jehoram built the high places for the worship of idols, and the Lord punished him with a shameful, painful death. That was instructive. Ramoth Gilead was the place where that random arrow shot slew wicked King Ahab. Maybe it's not the best place to go. Uh, one more time in wicked schemes against the Lord. One would think they would hesitate before just moving on to the new evil scheme, but you know, that's not how it works, is it? That's the doctrine of total depravity. The mind is unable to process the information of God. It's like Pharaoh of old. He would refuse God's command to let the people go, and God would strike him through Moses. We read the ten plagues of Egypt. They were, it was no fun. It was no joke what was happening to Egypt. But he forgot. He just did the next time ten times. Even when the Passover comes and the, the plague of the firstborn kills his son, his heart is hard. He's unable to think in a moral and spiritual way. Paul taught that all such reprobates are that way. They do not consider the truths of God, not only because they don't like them, but Paul says they are not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14. You know, it's a reminder as we pray for unbelievers, and particularly, and we should be praying, for the grace of God to convert wicked powers enthroned in high places, we must pray for supernatural power. Only the grace of God can break through their folly, their, their spiritually dead hearts, but he can do it. For it we must pay. Now, conversely, one of the most important lessons anyone can learn is that God is holy. And he combines that holiness with sovereign might. And this enables him to take vengeance at the times of his choosing. Vengeance is mine and recompense, says the Lord. Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-five. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. We must remember the judgment of the Lord. Well, God's vengeful wrath would not take long to find the wickedly advised King Ahaziah. Chronicle tells us where he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done. And so when he entered into battle alongside the apostate northern partner, there the Syrians wounded Joram. Now, by the way, don't be confused. We've got, it's kind of a blizzard of names. Jehoram and Joram are the same person. I don't know why he sometimes leaves the, the het out and sometimes he puts it in, but Joram and Jehoram of Israel are the same person. And the Syrians wounded him, the king of Israel. Now, totally in the thrall of his mother's house, Ahaziah then, the king of Judah, went speedily to Jezreel. Jezreel is the, is the southern palace. It's the winter palace of the house of Omri. It lies in the shadow of Mount Gilboa. That's a rather ominous place because that's where evil King Saul died when he rebelled against the Lord, 1 Samuel 31.4. To this place, Ahaziah, verse 6, the son of King Je of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab. And he arrived just in time to participate in one of the greatest judgment scenes to be found in all of Scripture. 
Now, the events that would take place at Jezreel go back to a prophecy delivered by God to wicked King Ahab through the prophet Elijah. Sometime earlier, through the evil agency of Athaliah's mother, Queen Jezebel, Ahab had seized a vineyard that was owned by a righteous man named Naboth, and then they slew Naboth and his sons. Well, Elijah was furious, and God sent him to announce doom to Ahab, together with his entire house. 1 Kings 21.19, first Ahab would die, and in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Now, there's divine retribution for you. That's where the dogs licked up uh, Naboth's righteous blood. Your blood is going to be licked up in the same field. Now, that prophecy was fulfilled precisely. Ahab was mortally wounded by an arrow at Ramoth-Gilead, and he was taken to Jezreel, where he bled to death in the field stolen from godly Naboth. The dogs drank up his blood. But the Lord's wrath was not done. Elijah added that the Lord would cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. 1 Kings 21, 22. Now, to accomplish that judgment, the Lord appointed a military, military leader in Israel whose name was Jehu. This is all material from now 2 Kings chapter 9. Elijah's successor, Elisha, had anointed Jehu with oil in the presence of the other commanders. He said, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets whom she had slain. And Jehu was told that he was to put the entire house of Ahab to judgment with the sword Every male, bond or free, in Israel. 2 Kings 9, verse 8. Now, that anointing took place, that that event takes place while King Jehoram is nursing his wounds at Jezreel. The commanders who heard this, they acclaimed him king immediately. And off they went in their armed forces for Jezreel. Now, 2 Kings 9 provides the details of how King Joram, he spied from the walls that Jehu was coming, riding up with his mounted horse, and actually he sends out a messenger to find out what they want. The messenger doesn't come back. He he joins them. They send another messenger. This is not good. And he doesn't come back. He joins with them. Finally, Jehoram, what he was thinking, I do not know. He gets in his chariot, wounded that he is, and he rides out to Jehu, and he says, 2 Kings 9.12, Is it peace, Jehu? The answer was going to be no. What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many, he answers, 2 Kings 9.22. Well, hearing this, Jehoram spurs his horses to escape. But Jehu very expertly draws his bow, and like his evil father Ahab, Joram dies with an arrow between his shoulder blades. Now, the chronicler doesn't really care about that. The chronicle's interested with the house of Judah. It's a different theological purpose, a different redemptive setting. What he cares about is the southern kingdom. So what he really tells us only is that Ahaziah was present as well. Look at verse 7 of our passage. For when he came there, he went out with Jehoram to meet Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to destroy the house of Ahab. Now this is going to be bad for him. 
The account of Kings tells how Ahaziah managed to escape initially, but he was hunted down and then he was shot in his chariot. 2 Kings 9 verse 27. Here's how the chronicler puts it more succinctly. And when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he met the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers who attended Ahaziah and he killed them. He searched for Ahaziah and he was captured while hiding in Samaria and he was brought to Jehu and put to death. Verses 8 to 9. Now, if we may ask why it was that Jehu killed Ahaziah, who after all was the king of the southern kingdom, well, the answer is found in his commission to slay all the males of the house of Ahab who were, quote, in Israel. 2 Kings 9, 8. Well, though king of Judah... He was the grandson of Ahab. And guess where he was? This is a reminder to watch where the Lord finds you. Watch the company that you keep. I'm reminded of John the Apostle when he was uh, fighting against Corinthus, a great uh, 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 heretic denying the deity of Christ. He went into a bathhouse. And they, uh, and they, he finds there's Corinthus. And he walks in, he turns, he walks back out. They said, why are you walking out? I don't want to be there when God causes the roof to fall down, the Apostle John said. That's from the writings of Papias in the early 2nd century. Well, that would have been good wisdom for Ahaziah because he was of the house of Ahab and he was in Israel. And so he died. Martin Selman writes, by failing to separate himself from Jehoram, he made himself liable to suffer the same punishment God had previously announced against Ahab's house. Now, there is one detail, however, by which the fate of Ahaziah differs from that of his uncle, King Joram of Israel, for while the bodies of the northern kings and and the princes were left out to be eaten by dogs and birds. By the way, I'm leaving out the whole great story of Jezebel's death. Go back and read 2 Kings 9. You'll feel holy vindication as she's eaten by the dogs. I'll just leave it there. That's there, too. But they're left out to be, to be eaten, not the king of Judah. Ahaziah is permitted the dignity of a burial. Now, why is that? Well, the answer is in verse 9 of our passage. For they said he is the grandson of Jehoshaphat, who sought the Lord with all his heart. Isn't it wonderful? Even years after he's died, Jehoshaphat's godly life continues to bless his household. Same thing happens today. Godly Christian men and women, their influence, their legacy extends to the generation of their grandchildren and even beyond. 2 Kings 9.28 says that his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. Well, Proverbs 10 verse 7 tells us that the memory of the righteous is a blessing Even a hard and violent man by Jehu, and by the way, he's going to be no better than Ahab. So the the day's going to come when he gets the same treatment. But godless as he was, violent as he was, he was dominated. He was daunted by the memory of a true man of God, Jehoshaphat, so that he allowed the burial of his grandson. Now the key to understanding Ahaziah's demise is found in verse 7. It was ordained by God. It was ordained by God that the downfall of Ahaziah should come about through his going to Jehoram. Now notice that insistence 
on the detailed sovereignty of God. Not just some general big picture control. No, the the time, the place, the setting, the, the way it happens. Detailed sovereignty. The event of his death was ordained by precise circumstances. And this reminder that God can and does intervene to, to tear down the powers of evil gives great encouragement to God's people in every generation. I've always loved how it encouraged Asaph in Psalm 73. Asaph had grown resentful and sullen. Why? He saw the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73, 3. Why do they have it so great? I, I love that line. They're sleek and fat. That was praise in those days. They have a good, being, the wicked are having a great time. Look at us. But he continues. He comes to his senses and Asaph discerned their end. Psalm 73, 17. He remembered that God had ordained judgment and his heart was restored to a worshipful rest. What an encouragement that we know that God has ordained judgment on the wicked. And he is sovereign both in ordaining and in fulfilling his judgment. That, by the way, is why the Apostle Paul commanded Christians not to take vengeance. Precisely because God will. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, we are to leave judgment to him. Romans twelve nineteen. Now, most important is a reminder that God was... Sovereign not only in ordaining Ahaziah's wrathful, wrathful death, but the Lord has further ordained the judgment of everyone who sins and who is not forgiven through faith in the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, It is appointed, it is ordained for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Do you know that includes you? Have you reckoned on the biblical teaching that God has ordained your judgment? If you have hesitated or refused to confess your sins and believe in the atoning atoning work of Jesus on the cross, here's how Jesus put it in John 8, 24. Unless you believe that I am he, the promised Messiah, you will die in your sins. The slaying of wicked King Ahaziah, precisely as ordained by God, Reminds you, reminds all of us, rightly to fear God's judgment. He always performs all that he ordains. Well, with the death of Ahaziah, there was now a problem for the southern kingdom. Look at verse 9. For the house of Ahaziah had no one able to rule the kingdom. Now the house of Ahaziah is also the house of David the covenant line of God's promise. And Jehoram had struck out in violence against his brothers because he wanted to secure the line. Well, in God's irony, then he had his line cut down. That's what happens. Sin leads to retribution. A bear year year later, his son Ahaziah has died, and now there is no son eligible to rule. Now, this judgment, therefore, produced a tension for God as well as for the people of Judah. Remember in the previous chapter, the chronicler noted that the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant he had made with David, since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. 
And so from a human perspective, this commitment from the Lord that there would always be a descendant, a royal son from the line of David, that commitment now hung by a thread. Andrew Hill comments, the house of David has been purged of sin, yes, but the end result seems even more precarious than the combined reigns of Jehoram and Ahaziah. Now this is not to say, however, that Ahaziah lacked sons. We remember he was 22 when he came to the throne. That means he was 23 when he died. His heirs were far too young to rule. Well, evil loves a vacuum as much as nature abhors it. And so Athaliah seized her moment to take the power for herself. Well, the means by which she took control are rather shocking, even for a daughter of Jezebel, since she did it by murdering her own grandchildren. Look at verse 10. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. Now, scholars offer understandable, if evil, reasons why this wicked queen mother would do this, to slay the male children of Judah's ruling house. One reason would be that she needed a safe place to be. Her her family has been wiped out now. The house of Ahab's been slain. All the males are gone. And so she might have reasoned, well, what safer place than a throne? And so she sought to quell any nationalist uprising against her from the royal house by massacring the Davidic line. So it might have been expediency. Probably was. Some also suspect revenge. If the house of Ahab in Israel was put to the sword, well, so also would the house of David in Judah. And yet I think the chronicler's language suggests something more sinister. He says that she destroyed all the royal house, a family of the house of Judah. Whatever else is true, Athaliah was a pawn in the service of Satan to destroy the seed of the line of the Messiah whom God had promised to send. Victor and Striegel write, such fury did not only arise from human infirmity, but was encouraged by the devil through his instrument, Athaliah. The devil wanted to destroy all of David's seed, insulting the God who promised that the Messiah would be born from the seed of David according to the flesh. Now we're going to read in the next chapter how Athaliah succeeded for a while in taking power in Judah. But she did not succeed in destroying David's line. And the story of how one baby boy was secreted out from the royal nursery, it's the kind of thing we often see in a science fiction movie. I'm thinking of Princess Leah and Luke and how his little babies, they're kept safe. By the way, you notice how literature in the movies keep having the, 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 the child who's kept safe and he's going to save them. I don't know that they're doing it on purpose. They just can't help it. They live in a world in which that is the grand meta narrative. The God who made the world his own plan, his own grace, tells that story. It's the one that sells. And so it is here. In fact, the vision of Revelation 12 would suggest that, that this is the grand narrative that history cannot avoid. Baby Joash, royal son of King Ahaziah, now he was not the savior for whom the faithful of God's people were awaiting, but he was a vital and necessary link to Jesus. He kept alive the line of David through which the Messiah must one day be born. Well, in a fitting manner, Athaliah's plan was undone by a woman of faith. 
A woman of faith and courage who sees an opportunity to save this one royal child. Look at verse 11. But Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Now, I'd love to know the details of how she did this. And I think the, the imaginations of storytellers would be give us a, a very dramatic yarn. Uh, she's the daughter of the former king Jehoram. By the way, Josephus assures us she is not the daughter of Athaliah, but a stepdaughter. Her mother was another wife. That is probable. And because she was around the royal household, she learned what was happening. So what did, what happened? Thinking quickly, did she sneak unobserved into the nursery, maybe exchange babies with someone else? Is that what happened? We don't know. Did she have a friend among the palace guards who could help her and protect her as she did her scheme? Did she drop a vase on the head of one of the guards and sneak in, snatch the child, grab the nurse, and sprint? We just don't know. I'd love to know. We're going to find out one day. Maybe there was just too much chaos amidst mass murder so that she entered unobserved, quickly summoned the terrified nurse and secreted away the youngest baby and no one was the wiser. We don't know how she did it, but however she performed the rescue, Jehoshaphat stands in the annals of godly women who made an eternal difference in the cause of Jesus Christ. We should know her name. Jehoshaphat, Dale Ralph Davis calls her the lady who saved Christmas. Human speakingly, without this courageous Jewish princess, the Savior Jesus never could have been born in the Bethlehem manger. You see, the men had all fallen to the sword, and so now the contest for God's reign in Judah came down to a struggle of two women. One evil, one good, one the servant of Satan, the other a handmaiden of the Lord, one wielding a blood-soaked sword from the seat of power, the other quietly acting in secret at risk of her life to preserve the cause of God's salvation. Jehoshabeth was the kind of unnoticed believer. By the way, that unnoticed part is probably how she didn't get her own head struck off. But the kind of unnoticed believer who makes a vital difference, often without drawing attention to herself. How many such Christians who devote themselves, for instance, to prayer. The difference made by the prayer warriors of the church, we will never know till we get to heaven. Or, or who humbly serve those who, who, who get more limelight, but they could never do what they did, did without the support and the labors of people like her. Those who share the word of the gospel with sinners in need, they have played roles in God's saving work in a way that we will not learn until we enter glory. Like so many unnoticed believers, particularly in times of persecution, those who pray, those who meet secretly, those who pass on the faith to their children, those who distribute contraband Bibles. This is going on right now all around the world. Those who serve the spread of the gospel by all legitimate means. Jehoshaphat is the heroine of a resistance movement. She risks her life so that good will triumph. Well, Jehoshaphat was actually well-placed to save her nephew, not only because she was herself a member of the royal household, but she also happened to be married to Israel's high priest. Verse 11, the daughter of King Jehoram and wife of Jehoiada the priest because she was a sister of Ahaziah. Well, she was very wise. She gets the baby out and she does nothing. She doesn't do anything to stop the coup d'etat, that, nor was she going to. Athaliah had taken control. She was now wielding the sword. 
So she took the baby king to the temple courts. That's where she and her husband lived. Verse 12, he remained with them six years, hidden in the house of God, while Athaliah reigned over the land. Now the house of God refers to Solomon's temple, where Jehoshaphat lived with the high priest and now the fledgling king. It may just as well have referred to God's saving purpose and promise, because all who flee there will find eternal safety. Consider the situation briefly in Jerusalem from a human perspective. Because of Jehoshaphat's knuckleheaded decision the generation beforehand to, to marry his son to the daughter of, of Jezebel, now the house of David's fallen under sinister influence, and then God starts judging them, and finally Ahaziah, he's slain in the violence of Jehu. And now Athaliah has purged the house of David. None remain to all appearances to claim the throne of David to which God's promises of salvation are attached. All that is happening is an evil queen sits enthroned with power to wage a new reign of terror. What should the people do? You know, many would say, well, the time has come to go along to get along. What can we do? The Lord's purposes don't seem to be ascendant. They seem not even to be possible to our own wisdom. It all had failed. But you see, Jehoshaphat had an inside line on the truth that all of God's people know. All of God's people should know. Of course, we have an inside line too because we read it in our Bible. Here's the thing that she knew that we must know. God's promises never fail. God's purpose is never thwarted. Though unseen, secreted away in the high priest's house, God had resources to display that would turn the tide at the moment of his choosing. And so in short, just as God had ordained judgment on the house of Ahab, and that judgment surely fell. My friends, here's the good news. God has ordained salvation. And it too must come to pass. God promised David, I will establish a royal line in Israel forever. First Chronicles 22.10 And so the Lord must find a way of his own, often through unnoticed believers like godly Jehoshaphat, so that by his secret power what he has ordained will come true. You know, that means that we should have the quality of faith that is ascribed to Abraham. Abraham lived in another time when it seemed impossible that God's promise could come true. But what does Paul say about him? It should be said of us. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Romans 4, 20 to 21. Well, I mentioned the vision of Revelation 12 with the red dragon trying in vain to slay God's royal child. It finds its true climax 800 years after the rescue of little Jehoshaphat, 840 years or so after. At that time, Jerusalem was ruled by, you guessed it, an evil king. Not a queen this time, it's an evil king, Herod the Great. And he learns from some traveling wise men that it seems that the promised child of God's salvation finally has been born. And so Herod summons his scribes. Where is the promised child supposed to be born? And somebody scarfs up the prophecy of Micah. 
And he tells them, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Micah 5, 2. All that Herod hears is Bethlehem. So off go his soldiers. They go speeding like Athaliah's guards, her murderers. They speed to Bethlehem and they slay all the male children in Bethlehem, two years old or under. Matthew 2, verse 16. Now this time the Lord used an angel. The Josephus of that story is Joseph and Mary. But an angel comes, warns them, and they speed off to keep the precious child safe. Well, let's fast forward then 30 years afterwards to the city of Jerusalem. This time there's a wicked ruler over Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And we see him pronouncing an unjust sentence on Jesus of Nazareth. And he's taken to Mount Calvary, and there he's crucified. He's beaten, he's nailed to a cross, and there he dies before all the world. Here's the question. Even then, did Satan have his victory? Was Jesus' death enough? There's not only the seed of the Messiah, the Messiah himself. Does it end what God has ordained? Well, the answer appears, you know when it appears, three days later. What we call Easter Sunday. When the tomb is empty and Jesus emerges in his resurrected body to show himself to the band of those who believe, do we see the point that stirred the faith of women like wonderful Jehoshaphat? Let's remember her name. And men like the chronicler, who centuries after her, he retails his story so that the point is passed on. Here's the point. God's ordained salvation is sure. So you may be certain of forgiveness. You may be certain of eternal life if you believe on God's promised Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me warn you, judgment too is ordained for those who do not believe, for all the wicked servants of evil like Ahab and his daughter Athaliah and many more mundane people who refuse to bend the knee to God's Son. How vital it is that we should look to Jesus in faith, that we would trust the promise of God, yes, against all earthly odds. He has ordained salvation in his Son. And so here's a promise that Jesus himself gives to you. It's a promise you will find true. I tell you, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 5, 24. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jehoshaphat. I think probably most of us never heard of her until now. But Lord, we, we want to be like her. And you have a, a place for each of us. You have gifts and callings, a setting Sometimes it's in easier times, sometimes it's in harder times. But Father, let us be like her who quietly or openly, whatever you call us to do, that we would take a stand for the truth of your word, that we would extend ourselves for the gospel, that we, like her, would play a role in that story that is the story and it's going to culminate when Jesus comes back. Lord, we don't see him now, but he's with you in your house in heaven. You tell us he's coming soon. Oh, Father, let us hear the words Jehoshaphat is going to hear. 
When Jesus says to the faithful, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Oh, Lord, may we be in her company then. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.